Welcome to the Inside World Festival of Interiors podcast. This series features live recordings from the annual festival, where designers, architects and commentators discuss the latest trends, challenges and most inspiring interior projects from the last year. Make sure you subscribe to always receive the latest episode and the follow us on Instagram at Inside World Fest. As a futurologist, I'm usually asked, so what will the future be? And I usually have to answer with, I have no idea, but maybe I have a better idea why I can't know anything about the future than you. And uh, so basically, I'll start on that pretense. And um, when we ask the future, how is, it, how is the way we live changing, we need to look at the past because only in the past, we can actually see what we feel is relevant for tomorrow, today. And so when we look at, um, at the future, we usually tend to think that we are very creative and come up with very great new ideas that nobody has ever thought before. But basically, what actually the future consists of is our repertoire of utopias, of past visions, in limbo. So these utopias in limbo, these ideas that have been around for quite some time, and they're kind of too alive to be forgotten, but they're also too dead to become reality. So we always tend to live in that paradox that um, we feel there might be something different, but the only way we can actually picture it, the only way we can actually give it an image is by relating it back to past images of the future. And um, since I only got 10 minutes, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm basically, I want to rush through this uh, thing. And I want to just point out one very particular thing, which you all being architects might not be very surprising for you, but there's a haunting connection um, of these utopias in limbo from the 60s and what we see and feel today how technology is treated. So um, just a quick glimpse at um, the big Heatherwick proposal for the new uh, Google headquarter will show you there's a lot of Buckminster Fuller in it. There's a lot of Babylon from constant in it. There's a lot of Cedric Price in it. There's a lot of Frei Otto in it. So basically all these images of the new Google campus, they kind of resonate these past futures of the 60s, but under a completely different pretense. So Douglas Murphy, who wrote a book on, uh, on the influence of 60s architectures of today, he actually is um, uh, quite critical about it and he says the designers of the Google campus have somehow taken these still advanced proposals of the 60s and lost both the futuristic qualities and the possible historic quality that might also have been achieved. We don't want to discuss if he's right or wrong, but we want to actually look at one point the possible historic quality that he saw in architecture and technology in the 60s that he's so lacking in this proposal for today. So I guess what 
me, for me as a as a cultural scientist, you know, I'm I'm not really interested in constructing and building. I'm interested in the symbolism and the metaphors that actually derive from that for society. And so for me, one major aspect that was very new in the 60s was that technology was perceived as the savior, as something that could actually alternate our understanding of how society works. So if we look at House Rucker from Vienna at that time, they were architects, but they were practicing something that was more interventionist art than architecture because it was temporary structures that only made sense if they were used. So it wasn't buildings that stood per se for something, but it was actually apparatuses that could alter or change the understanding of the surroundings. And the theses behind that was that if you could understand society differently, you could also come up with different ideas of spaces, of how you would perceive spaces and how you would plan buildings. Another very, very great example, uh, I know Jürgen is a big fan of him, is uh, the work of Frederick Kiesler, who also did use technology not a means to an end, but actually as something to articulate a new idea of architecture, of how rooms could become more fluid, of how actually a space could be perceived beyond the mere idea of a ceiling, a floor, and a wall, but could merge and morph into something very different. Um, so what actually happened is that um, the critique we see with the uh, Google campus is nothing new. When the Centre Pompidou opened, people were saying, well, they copied Plugin City by Archigram, but actually deprived the idea of the Plugin City, the city that could be assembled and disassembled, and only used it as an ornament. Well, if you look at it, it's not very far-fetched. If you look at the inside, um, they were saying, well, there was a concept by Cedric Price, the Fun Palace. And the Fun Palace was an idea that a space could actually merge and become what the user, user actually needed. And again, if we look at the uh, Centre Pompidou, what happened is it looks quite like the Fun Palace at the inside, but of course, the idea of the Fun Palace that everything was flexible or could, could be um, uh, changed um, uh, is not possible in this fixed structure. Yet, um, I mean, there's a lot of criticism you could uh, uh, bring about against the Centre Pompidou, taking an idea and monumentizing it. Um, I, when I read up on this thing, um, the, the redevelopment or the refurbishment of the entire building a decade ago was actually more expensive than the building. Um, uh, initially, so I mean, there's a lot of criticism you could uh, say again, or bring up against this sort of building. But I'm not saying that the ornament, the technology as the ornament, is a bad thing because what I think it does is it creates or foreshadows another or different idea of how to perceive an environment that is deeply um, uh, connected with technology. Um, so there was an exhibition in 85 in, uh, in the Centre Pompidou 
Les Immateriaux uh, by um, uh, Lyotard. And it was probably the first exhibition that really foreshadowed our current use of technology that actually made it possible to use technology to understand things better. So it was a sensory exhibition that tried to trigger smells and tastes and feelings. It was a very empathetic idea of how technology could be something more than just um, a tool. And I would argue that this sort of exhibition and this aspect of going forth is only possible in an environment like the Centre Pompidou that actually uses technology as an ornament, but that with that provides a space that actually gives us ways of thinking about today differently. The exact opposite is... Um, ah, this is uh, something I think I cut because I already talked for too long. Um, wait. Where's... Okay. Um, I wanted to... I, I need to catch back. I think the slides uh, simply made up. So I guess when we look at Berlin today, this place as it is seen here, that displays technology in building, is supposed to be looking like this in the future. And I feel that this is the exact opposite of what a progressive or even forward-looking society needs as a space, as a forum, to think about the future differently. Yet, it's very much in line with how we approach technology today because, and this is where the slides got mixed up, sorry, because what we saw, what we saw over the last years is that we have this digitally enhanced environments that we see in Minority Report or Iron Man. So you actually do have technology that is somewhat visible in uh, the physical realms. But if we look at her, this is way more science fiction and way more future than these two images because here everything is digitized. So these people, they are only connected by these devices in their ears. I hope you've seen the movie. If you haven't, you definitely need to uh, see it. Um, they are connected by these devices and it's a completely anti-technology environment, yet it's super digitized. And if we kind of lose that connection between what is actually happening in the digital infrastructures that lie beneath our built environment, and only create these images of a very leisurely, nice, untechnological environment, we then again lose touch with what technology actually means and how it drives us. And um, so this is something um, uh, what I like about Jürgen's work a lot, that it actually does have a very technological edge in the way of not displaying technology as a means to an end, but actually enabling people who use technology and making them, you're going to show about it a bit more, I guess. Um, so, how long, Nigel, give me a hands up about time. Everything all right? Okay. So, I, I quickly come to an end then. Um, all right.
So again, you know, this actually, my proposition would be the uh, castle, the Berlin castle should stay exactly like that. Shouldn't be, you know, the, the entire place shouldn't be changed. Unfortunately, it already has, but you know, that would have been the perfect backdrop to understand, you know, how society and technology meet today. Not this. Incredible. They even used an old photo with old people. I don't know why they did that, but that's, an, that's their promotional photo. I'm not so much for it. Um, I have three theses to, uh, um, to, to consider when uh, thinking about architecture uh, and the city of the future. And I think it's very important um, to be clear or sure that this is something that uh, we will not be preventing but witnessing. So my first thesis is that machines will become increasingly invisible to humans the more far-reaching the, um, the capabilities and skills of machines become. This is what I try to display with uh, her, that you can already see that there. Um, the second thing is that interaction points between machines and human will seem increasingly natural, will benefit from the increasing convergence of communication habits and rituals of humans and machines. So what I feel is very important about that is that if we no longer can differentiate between a machine and a man, architecture should as well be an enabler to help us guide or exist and coexist with technology within this uh, um, uh, context. And I mean, this probably goes a bit off topic, but it's amazing. You might be familiar with the Turing test. The Turing test is a basic test um, that if um, man realizes that, no, yeah, if a man realizes that he talks to a machine, the machine has not passed the Turing test. So if we turn it around and a machine no longer realizes that it actually talks to a man and not another machine, we have a reverse Turing test and this is actually happening. So the idea that the communication between man and machine is hierarchical is long over. So that is a very conversational level between these two entities. And I think that's very important. And uh, sadly enough, I think architecture is one of the um, least places um, that takes that into account. If you look at the smart home technologies, they all rely on control. They all rely on the fact and the idea that you actually just have to open up an app and tell your house what it needs to do. There is no responsiveness and no yeah, no conversational quality to the idea of technology within a built environment today. The last point is that I think um, the increasing digital homogenization will define the development of the urban sphere because only those who have the abilities to self-quantify will be perceptible for the self-quantifying city. What I mean with this is that we will see a digital divide over the next decade that will no longer differentiate between the people that do own a smartphone or do not own a smartphone, but between the people that are actually allowing their data to be used by a city and the people that actually do no, not allow uh, da their data to be used by a city. So what will happen is, just a very, very easy example. If you share all your data with your city, you'll wait at a red light 
an average of 3.5 seconds. If you don't share your data with your city, you will wait at a red light average 40 seconds because you're just with your own actions within the city are no longer recognized as an acting citizen of this city. And this is, I would say, not good, not because, um, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to get into a, a, a Orwellian um, idea of the whole thing, but this is not good because I think we're not prepared and our infrastructures and we as parts of our infrastructures are simply not prepared for the fact that we will coexist with machines on a very different level than we do today. So let me close off with a statement that is uh, at least um, arguable um, by uh, Douglas Murphy again. So he says, today's world bears the traces of this abandonment of digital technologies. While almost every experience of space from shopping and traveling to the workplace and spaces of trade has been technologically transformed in the last half a century, the house is the one spatial form where nothing appears to have changed. And uh, with this, I, I would like to uh, hand over to Jürgen and uh, ask, okay, maybe something has changed. Thank you very much. I have to stand here because I have some notes I want to uh, look at while I'm talking. Um, it's more of a thought or, um, in progress that I would like to share today, um, which is on sleeping, napping, and lying down. And uh, somehow it looks into ideas of us in relationship to others, um, a reflection of ours um, in direct kind of creating shadows on our environment or um, broadcasting ourselves into a different realm. It's about me and others, it's about body and environment, and it's also, of course, looking into new materials and um, technologies, what Ludwig was describing before. I start with um, a project uh, that's called Lie, and it's about um, a bed sheet that's temperature sensitive, and uh, it changes color with um, energy input, which is warmth of the body. And so you have a trace of yourself kind of turning around. Um, you're basically sleeping with yourself. Um, there is a kind of a time lapse of your movement. And the same we also did with um, a heat seat, where uh, this is, again, a pane that's temperature sensitive, and it leaves a trace of your body. It's kind of an invisible landscape, temperature landscape that you're projecting. So you kind of get your direct interface between you and the environment. And this is um, a kind of a sample where we used material technology as this kind of reflection and broadcasting of uh, an invisible other body that we don't uh, usually see. And remember this one in the last project that I'm showing later. The other um, object uh, of investigation is uh, how we start to become kind of active in the public spaces. And here I want to show a shopping mall that we are, or it's called Home for Experience and Brands. So home as a place where we feel safe and maybe um, trust that we are kind of contained. It's a, a, a shopping mall that has activity content. Um, in this case, it's a surf wave and an indoor skydiving here in Berlin. We start construction next year. 
the main part um, and the main attractor is this um, surf wave, which is, of course, a meeting place, a hangout, uh, a kind of a public space in an interior that can be opened up in summer times. And um, I'm showing it because, of course, these moments also become when we show our experiences to others, where we share our moments um, and broadcast that on our social media with our digital body that we carry around with us. The smartphone, maybe later on, uh, more invisible technologies that uh, can be used for that. So one project uh, with the heat seat is the material sensibility that is kind of a new technology that shows our interaction with environment. And the other one, of course, is digital media or social media. Um, it somehow comes together in our project in Seville where the very heart of the city somehow, you know, the, the center for the whole community of the city um, now gathers in Metropole Parasol, which is in the very center of the old town. It was a, um, a parking lot for many years. It was the marketplace before, and now it's like the new kind of heart of, um, of uh, Seville. We used, of course, technology to make a special place, kind of a customized inner space for um, Seville, somehow even like a, a footprint that comes from certain references that we find um, in the environment, around plazas with big trees, the cathedral with the undulated stone roof. So they're close um, relationships to traces and to elements that we find in Seville. So again, somehow, maybe even an imprint of that Seville identity on, um, on that site. Then, of course, it needs also new technology, like the, um, this Kerto uh, laminated timber um, and the bonding technology that brings this all together and creates a space that, again, projects the sunlight with shadow onto the ground. Um, it has this relationship with the city, the historic context, but then also it really anchors into the rituals of the everyday life. In this case, it's the Christmas market or the Semana Santa. Again, here you see how broadcasting and social media and this communication, I am there, I'm showing you live, you know, uh, the kind of the experience that I'm having. And you see that an experience cannot only be experienced anymore, it has to be somehow communicated. And that's what you see very well in this image as well. Um, another Semana Santa picture, you see somehow how it really gathers and becomes the meeting place for um, the city, but it also projects outside in the Bing map starting site, for example, in China, or, is this moving? Yeah, or people who are taking their Instagram photos, selfies, and uh, maybe selfies you know, now representing all of that, what I'm talking about. Um, but it was also the place for demonstrations, for public um, uh, lectures and conversations on the future of the city. This was just when it opened in 2011, where this was the place where people felt it was the moment to discuss about the future of their society, of their culture, um, for the next generations. And it was also the place where people, in the end, could sleep and, you know, after being exhausted, feel kind of taken care of with this arch or umbrella that is hoovering over them even at night. Now you can't sleep there anymore. They close it at you know, close after midnight. But at that time, the city really took care of, um, you know, the the. the the crowd that was discussing and feeling exhausted. So again, sleeping in public space, you know, kind of something that we don't really see as something um, that is 
accepted or really um, welcomed is an option that I think blurs these boundaries between the inside and the outside. The idea of vulnerability and trust, you know, where do you feel safe, where do you feel um, maybe not uh, protected enough. And I'm jumping from this public space now to a project that we just um, opened in New York on Times Square called XXX, Times Square with Love. Um, and here you see somehow the echo of the first um, heat seeds that I showed you earlier. In this case, it's not a temperature-sensitive paint that reflects and that communicates, but it's um, a reference again to the site, a very close look at what we interpret as a, kind of a special identity of Times Square, um, the axis of um, Broadway and 7th Avenue. So we take that um, and establish four seating elements, which is not for one person, but for four or more, where it becomes kind of a small element, a small object, but it already starts to bring people into moments of negotiation. You have to like, argue like, who can stretch out their legs, um, who has to take care um, of um, you know, making space for the next one. But also it's kind of a nod to the history, the seedy history of Times Square, where on 42nd Street and Times Square you had all these um, porn movie theaters, which is um, so, of course, like erased now. And the critique that Times Square um, faces and the organization Times Square Arts Alliance that it somehow lost its kind of uh, awareness of the history now comes back with a kind of a smile, a family-friendly smile um, by looking at these historic images but bringing that as, a, as an echo. So here you see these, uh, the opening of the XXX which is next to the Recruition Pavilion, maybe the best protected sleeping and lying down place on the world because you have machine gun soldiers standing next to you. Um, that's where they uh, you know, try to bring people or, you know, to be interested in uh, joining the military in the States. Um, but it's, you know, two seconds after we opened it, it was busy. And I think since then there was no moment where nobody was lying on those. Um, uh, it works for all ages and for all interest groups. Um, but it was also important for us to say that if we talk about social media and public space, there's maybe no better place to discuss this than Times Square, which is a media-saturated environment. You have all these uh, media screens. There are maybe 10, 12 public webcams that constantly broadcast you when you walk on Times Square into you know, the world. You can actually enter them on any computer. Um, we wanted to uh, kind of discuss or uh, highlight this relationship between you as a selfie broadcaster at the same time also somebody who is constantly then uh, shown somewhere else globally um, as uh, an, a moment of uh, yeah, social interaction and you lay down, you look at the sky in a different way but at the same time you actually also looked at from the sky, from these webcams down onto you. And so we also had a geo filter um, that was established by the Times Square Arts Alliance. Uh, so you send out, again, your moments from Times Square. They're going to be moved uh, around, so they're permanent, but they will be constantly like, placed in different areas because the whole Times Square is constantly reorganized with other events, operas, uh, art performances, installations. Um, it, of course, it was on television. This was in the cab then in the evening. But uh, two weeks later, it appeared also on the real estate um, page of New York Times where they talk about the development of prices around New York, uh, Times Square area. They talk about how the whole uh, um, situation changed, how it's a good investment um, to have an apartment in that area. And the reference then was our XXX. Then if you feel 
kind of exhausted, or if you need like a little stroll from your apartment, you would go and hang out on the XXS on Times Square. So very simple elements that you put on the public square reflect back on a serious real estate market, which seems somehow seems to um, help even, uh, or not help, but like erases uh, the value of your apartment just by these little interventions. It's an interesting relationship that I think um, needs to be uh, discussed or needs to be at least um, put into a certain awareness. And so this is the final image I'm showing you here. This is how it looks at night. It's even more busy at night and during the day, as you can imagine. Um, a very special moment. And if you're in New York next time, check it out. Thank you. You are very sparing with the product projects that you've given to us, but um, of course we're on the inside stage, and the th overarching theme is fluidity. And one of the aspects that I love so much about the the Seville project is that it's unashamed uh, enhancement of public space. I mean, one of the talks I don't know if you were here yesterday when the Google building in London was being discussed. And it was evident that Google is so paranoid about sharing any of its kind of intellectual property that the building is absolutely hermetic. It doesn't give any space to the, to the public. So you're obviously somebody who believes in uh, the important connection between the people, the citizens, and the spaces. And in America, there is virtually no public space apart from the parks. I mean, it doesn't have the same value as it does in Europe. But how, do you, how did you persuade them to, to uh, uh, put these three X's in the street? That must have been a different kind of process than it would have been in Europe. Well, I, we were approached um, to make a proposal for Times Square uh, as an installation, and then we started to have a conversation with the okay. with the city, the Times Square Arts Alliance. They are right. the okay. kind of the cultural programmers for the Times Square area, so they commission operas, they commission maybe special screenings, they commission uh, a silent uh, symphony, they do art installations. So we started to talk about what you know, coming from an architectural point of view and how we look at the space rather than just um, like putting an object or like talking about a certain artistic intervention, how we can change the way we look at um, Times Square and the idea of looking up, um, you know, in a very busy environment, laying down, um, taking a moment of rest uh, could actually change a completely different perception of Times Square. So it started as a dialogue with them. And the idea of this XXX then kind of made sense because the, uh, it was kind of uh, coming from the geometry of the space. It talks about you know, an element that already has negotiation built in by having four or more people like lying on these things. So the interaction between the visitors and the, and, and the guests that come to Times Square was the key point in the very beginning of the project. But this doesn't necessarily, Ludwig, fall into the category of sort of hyper-futurology, does it? It seems to me that it's much more about uh, uh, capitalizing on what's possible now, about the way people behave and think and kind of act in cities now. And, uh, well, that, that it's 
that it's an increment of the future rather than a, a, a kind of forward throw. It's not utopian. No, not, not, not at all. Not at all. But um, I think the most important part that uh, Jürgen touched upon is the um, kind of the change or the re reversal of the CCTV into um, the user actually broadcasting his vision and version of the CCTV back. So there's, there's some, some aspect of... Well, that's about, that's about um, kind of the balance of power, isn't it? I mean, yeah. often technology is often, you know, profiling is for the benefit of those in control of the, of, of the commercial environment, like Amazon or <clears throat> the idea that you can be profiled around the city, which you mentioned, being stopping at a traffic light, that you would be, you know, like Pavlov's dog, you would be trained to be a good citizen and give up your data. Right, right. But there is a kind of um, haunting uh, echo of many uh, movies that have presented dystopian narratives, which you kind of hinted at. Mm -hmm. I mean, one of the questions I perhaps like to put to both of you is that architects and designers and interior designers, likewise, are always compelled to kind of make things incrementally better. We can't be kind of critically uh, present critical ideas. We can't be dystopic in the same way that uh, artists or filmmakers can. Or do you think that the architect can be um, can can raise those sorts of issues with with impunity? Well, I guess um, they can they can spin it positively, and they can still kind of instead of seeing an embetterment just as a way of making things a little bit more nice they can they can still apply a more um, I don't know a more a political is probably not the right word but they can they can still hint at or imply a, a different society in their designs and I think it's that is even more effective um, because it's actually it's felt through all the senses and the paper architecture and the visions of utopian or the imagery is is kind of it's it's still on the surface so wherever wherever something actually transforms into a physical uh, state where it actually can be experienced in many different uh, ways i think that is that is a, a key way of emancipating you're kind, you're, society. You're, you're kind of dodging the question. Yeah, <laughs> I am. <laughs> but that, so just going back to the triple X, it's kind of nice. It's not kind of... Uh, it's nice. It's not hardcore. It's not, it's not that provocative. It's a kind of park bench by any other name. Do you think it's possible to be... Uh, more provocative in the public arena than this? I mean, if an artist was doing it, they probably would go harder. Well, I don't make so much a difference in the disciplines uh, in, uh, in kind of doing these kind of interventions. I think these pieces can be read in different ways, uh, depending on what's your kind of knowledge or what's the kind of the the backing information that you have when you go and see at it. You know, you can start footling with other people and, um, you know, that might be 
dangerous or not. Uh, of course, it has a kind of a maybe over-sweet uh, intervention that maybe balances even more the kind of the nasty or the seedy part, you know, what is it a reference to. But it's not only that one reference, it's one of the references that we have. Um, at the same time, you could also see it as a maybe a, a, a critique or echo uh, to um, Valentine's Day and, you know, the kind of the sweetness of sending your kisses and hugs with every SMS that you're sending, uh, with every text message that you're sending. You know, what is this kind of... Um, uh, no, it's a potent. A of course, it's a potent sign. But triple X. Yeah, but, but, but there are probably there were saunas and kind of burlesque theatres and God knows what around there yeah, yeah. that were on a different wavelength altogether. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, but I'd like to just. Uh, sorry, I'm just going to ask the audience if they have any questions. I mean, um, we've been given a very interesting couple of uh, perspectives. Who'd like to ask a question? Am I the only one who's got the nerve to ask a question? There's nothing, uh, any, any, uh, do you buy it? <laughs> okay, thank you. I'm gonna come right to the back to give you the microphone. Hi guys, thanks for your talk. So I'm interested in the culture kind of divide. So as architects you have, and designers, you have a right to make comments on the cultural side, like, um, you know, programs and things, or is that shaped by the community that you're serving? So is it purely, you know, is it an aesthetic or is it also about social commentary and kind of the cultural aspect, I guess? I think what I try to say in the presentation is that a public space or let's say home and outside or domestic and, um, and public is not so much uh, uh, a, a contrary condition anymore. There is something that is actually going inside, outside. Um, at home you might be actually more connected than outside because you, know, you might not have Wi-Fi or something. You, know, you might not be kind of connected on the outside. There might be moments where you feel more private if you're strolling through the city than actually being home. So um, the programming of public space or the programming of private space is something that I was trying to show here. And sleeping, napping, or lying down is one of these moments where you might feel you need to trust that you are safe or you feel vulnerable. And there are conditions inside or outside um, that are you know, allowing you to have these moments. Um, and I think these are situations in your everyday life where uh, they are kind of crucial. They are the moments where you make decisions. Is this okay actually to do that? Actually to perform lying down on a public space? You wouldn't really, um, you know, want to be considered as a homeless person. But then on other, you know, moments, this is actually an idea of lounging in the city. You have like this um, beach, beach bars and things like that. So the blurring between uh, what's domestic and what's public or what's domestic and what's urban is what I was trying to explain with this very moment of... Um, napping or lying down. But you, I know that you were asked to do, and L Ludwig told me that you were asked to do, speak about housing on the, on the main stage, and you kind of shrunk from that. But in actual fact, you, you, it seems to me that you're passionately interested in the kind of the, the, the domestic condition, whether it's in the house or in the city. You're leaning perhaps more towards the liberating effect of the city becoming a living room. That's a good way to put it. <laughs> <laughs> Any more? Yes. 
interesting uh, presentation, wonderful. The more, the more we are exposed to these uh, futuristic perspectives of design, architecture, urban planning, these emerging trends, this futuristic approach, it looks like that uh, as architects, as urban planners, we have a tendency to reshape how people are going to behave in one way or another. There is a form of detachment, distancing ourselves because of this paradigm of futuristic from cultural influences, from people needs, from real needs. My question is, are we, are we as, as architects, as urban planners, going the, with these paradigms, thinking to reshape people's behavior, how people are gonna to behave in these environments that we are creating? Or are we, our role, is to cater for the people needs. Thank you. In yeah, other words, I, is it manipulative or not? I think uh, the, 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 the tricky point would be to create moments of activation or moments of that are challenging, but they leave enough possibilities to you know, have different forms of appropriation, different forms of using them, um, trying to inventing something else. So it's more of a, uh, a catalyst um, that you bring into a public space. Thank you. I have a very straightforward question. Uh, do homeless people sleep on your triple X benches at night? Um, I don't know. I haven't been there yet. Um, they can. I'm not so sure if they would feel comfortable because it's a very kind of bright environment. So when you sleep, you know, that might not be the place where you sleep. But um, everybody's uh, welcome to lay down. So I don't know if they have a, a special policy there to take people away from it, but I don't think so. But homelessness is a kind of subtext in your talk, really, isn't it? Because if you're homeless, you're forced to use the city as a living room. You don't have any choice. And also, you know, if you're homeless, uh, at least that's what I witnessed in Berlin, um, you don't sleep in very dark corners because you want to be seen and you want a certain uh, security by, you know, being kind of observed in case something happens to you, somebody's attacking you. So this might be a little bit too uh, in, you know, in everybody's um, uh, surveillance, but it's um, definitely not an uncomfortable place to lay down. Can I, can I ask a question to both of you? Can you foresee at any time in the future that homelessness might be a preferred option? It's more nomadism, I guess. <laughs> I mean, given, given the um, responsibilities a uh, homeless situation um, lacks of, that might be something that is very interesting to a lot of people. And we actually do see a certain sense of bohem homelessness already in uh, co-working spaces. There was a guy um, who runs a business uh, social network uh, in Germany um, and he was talking yesterday about his apartments that, you know, you basically rent like a hotel, but they feel like a home. So I guess the, the very idea of, of making a lifestyle out of homelessness is, in a sense, the same problem as making sharing um, a thing that actually embatters the world, because it doesn't. Because you can only be homeless in that posh sense when you can 
uh, when you have enough funds to... And a credit to, card. And a credit card to settle down whenever you like. You know, you can use the car sharing services around town. Um, if in the moment you can't find a shared car, you can use a cab because you have enough money to do that. So I think there's a very, um, uh, very uh, dark... Um, spot on the whole sharing economy uh, thing that we we see in the revolutions against Uber and Airbnb around the world happening already. So um, yeah, I would I would say we we're far from that. You know, being homeless with a credit card. Yes, maybe. <laughs> anyway, um, any more pressing questions? Last one. Um, you said that humans are not prepared to coexist with technology and machines. Uh, so I just want to ask if you, like, if you think humans are ever going to change their culture towards that or when it's going to happen. Well, I think that, I mean, they have been adapting quite a lot ever since we had these stone things in our hands to carve out other stuff. You know, the, the tools and the technology we use have heavily advanced. But... But ever since the 60s, ever since uh, cybernetics um, changed the idea that a system would stick to the rules that were once set out, there has been a sort of reluctance on the human side to accept that the machines might as well develop and change in a way unpredescended and unthought of by us because they kind of create their own minds. And I think is there's a certain arrogance in treating objects as artifacts and not as integral parts, parts of ourselves. And um, it just very simple things, like um, if you look at Japan, um, uh, the, I'm, I'm fixed on traffic lights today, I'm sorry, but the pedestrian crossings um, for blind people, it's actually two birds that answer their calls across the street. So a blind person does, you know, get a sense of space um, by these two birds, these artificial birds communicating with each other. While in Germany, you get a, a very nasty beep, you know, that hurts your ears and that tells, you know, something is wrong with you, you need to be different. Mm. And so I guess um, some of that humbleness towards how technology can be used and advanced that we've seen in, in, in Japanese uh, traditions more than we've seen it in a Eurocentric context is something that I would feel um, we really need to work on. Whether in Japan, where the cash point machine has a picture of a little woman who uh, thanks you for visiting the machine and she bows to you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Isn't that nice? <clears throat> Isn't that lovely? Well, that was already 30 years ago. Anyway, I remain with the image of the House Rooker Company because I think it's uh, 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 very prophetic indeed. Thank you very much, Ludwig and Jürgen. It's a brilliant talk. Thank you.